Well, it happens every week when we're in worship, but uh, certainly this week as we were singing those songs and all those words we were singing totally uh, consistently point to the message of the gospel that we see in this text. Fourth chapter, Hebrews, beginning in verse 1. Remember, we're in a series full disclosure. It follows a series from the fall called Divine Exposures, where God gave us glimpses of Himself. But here in this book, this sermon of Hebrews, He gives us full disclosure. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. The Lord rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appointed a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Fifty years ago, a Senate subcommittee studying America, said that the future looked bright for free time in America. They predicted by the year 2000, Americans would work 22 hours a week and be able to retire at age 38. And the reason they said it was because of computers that were coming and technology of all types, robots, all kinds of gadgets. All of these gadgets would do the work for us and we could rest. And here it is, 66 years later. We have more gadgets than we know what to do with and less time. The clocks are ticking and we are running. Have you ever thought about that that we're the only country in the world that has a mountain called Rushmore? According to leisure time experts, leisure time in America has shrunk by 40% in the last 30 years. So what happened? What did that subcommittee miss? 
How could they get it so wrong? The answer is plain. They underestimated the insatiable desire of the American consumer. More time meant more money. More money meant more debt. More debt meant more work. And as the demands got greater, our lives got emptier. Years ago, I read a man's writing who said this. At 10 years old, I took piano lessons. Many youngsters love piano lessons. I hated them. I felt as though I was in jail for every one of those 45 minutes every week. But some of the music I enjoyed. I hammered the staccatos. I belabored the crescendos. I thundered the finishes. But there was one instruction that I could never obey to my teacher's satisfaction, and that was that zigzag command to rest. I mean, what sense did it make to rest? I was here to play. I was here to thunder at the piano. Why pause when I can pound? My teacher would explain, because the music always seems sweeter after the rest. I didn't understand it at age 10, but I do now. Life is always sweeter after the rest. Think of this audience. Jews who've come to trust Christ as their Messiah. Many of them priests. Many of them have spent a lifetime sacrificing and keeping obedience to the law. And yet they're tired. They've received and accepted and trusted Christ, and yet now their life is hard. And they ask a question many of us ask time and time again. If Jesus loves me so much, why is my life so hard? And the answer is plain. All through this sermon, life is a journey, it's not a sprint. And on that journey, we must find rest. I mean, the preacher knows it. You know how we know that he knows it? In 11 verses, he uses the word rest eight times. Because rest is as critical to them as it is to us. Have you ever asked the question, if Jesus loves me so much, why is my life so tough? Yes, you have. <laughs> and what the preacher is saying is Jesus is the full disclosure of God. He's got everything. Remember, he's the final word. He's our brother. He's our builder. And he's also our rest. If they needed to hear it, so do we. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the significance of rest. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what is he talking about? He's quoting Psalm 95, where the psalmist is recounting the story of ancient Israel. Remember, God delivered them for four, from 400 years of slavery. They've been in slavery for nearly 10 generations. And miraculously, he brings them out. And they get into a wilderness, and it could take ten, two weeks to get to the promised land, but instead it takes them 40 years. 
And yet through those 40 years in the wilderness, one generation, he meets every one of their needs. So he's brought them out of slavery. He's equipped them in the wilderness, and yet what do they do? They're selfish. They grumble. They're ingrates. And finally, God says in his anger, they shall not enter my rest. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the most severe uh, penalty, punishment, that anyone can ever know. I mean, rest is essential for life. It's part of the human condition. Studies have shown that without proper rest, a whole wide range of medical ailments can arise in our lives. High blood pressure, even death. But more than that, you know it. Rest brings balance in life. Amen is right. (laughs) One of my favorite Bible texts in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Isn't it yours? The Lord says, when you enter the promised land and you build goodly houses and you live in them and your flocks and your herds, they increase and your fields produce lavish abundance, do not say in your heart, by my power and my might I've gained these things. It is I, the Lord your God, who has given them to you. Why does he say that? Because he knows us. What's he saying? Remember me. Do you know what it is that gives us the greatest opportunity to remember the giver? It's rest. And that's why we're one of the most restless societies the world's ever known. We're the most self-focused society the world has ever known. We have no rest because we don't think at all of the giver. You know what we think? We believe that our worth is determined by what we do and what people think of us. That's the default position of every heart. That's at the root of every disobedience in your life. Do I matter? Am I worth anything? Do I have a a significance? By nature, we think that our significance comes from what we do and what people think of us. And you know the fruit of that? No rest. I mean, how can you rest? If you matter because of what you do and what other people think of you, you can't rest. You've got to ensure that they think well of you and you better do what you need to do. We're restless. We're weary. Second, notice not only the significance of rest, notice the stratas of rest. Look at verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. You can tell this guy isn't a Baptist because he can't cite it. People say, where is that in the Bible? Well, here, I think it's over there. What's he doing? He's talking about a certain kind of rest. Now, if you read this text many times... 
these 11 verses and really try to understand what he's saying, you will discover that he's talking about three different kinds of rest here. In verse 3, he's talking about a rest that comes when you enter the promised land. Now think about that. Prior to their entrance into the promised land, they were defined by their slavery. Their whole identity in, the, in Egypt and in the desert as slaves and nomads is they had no identity but servitude. For 440 years, they were subject to the demands of Egypt and the demands of the wilderness. But once they enter the promised land, their slavery is over. No longer are they identifying themselves by their identity as a slave. Now they're free. You know, that kind of rest is a rest that every one of us can experience. A freedom that comes by being freed from your bondage. I mean, I love AA. Hi, I'm Doug. I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) To be able to name that, to say I'm no longer enslaved to it, we all can experience that kind of freedom from bondage. It's a rest. That's one kind of rest. But a second kind of rest is in verses 4 and 5 where the preacher talks about another kind of rest that God experiences. He says somewhere it's written that God rested on the seventh day. Have you ever thought about that? Why did God rest? Why did he need to rest? Did he get tired? No. Was he weary? No. Was he a slave to anyone? No. Did he need to slow down? No. Why does he rest? The Bible tells us why he rests. He looked and saw all that he created in six days, and it was good, and he said it is very good. I'm satisfied. You see, that's the second kind of rest. Rest that comes from satisfaction. This rest is not simply a cessation of work. It's it's contentment knowing that what you have done is a function of who you are. And God knew that. Why was it good? Because he made it. What he made was a function of who he was. And because he's good, everything that he did was good. He had nothing to prove. There was no restlessness in God that would spring from discontentment. There was this inner, deeper rest that came from knowing that what he did flowed out of who he was. We talk about people being comfortable in their own skin. I'd say that's God, wouldn't you? Nothing to prove. That's the second kind of rest, but the preacher's not done. He's got a third kind of rest. Listen to what he says in verse 8. For good news came to us just as it did to them. Talking about the Israelites. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. You see, he's not talking about a rest that comes from being free from your bondage. He's not talking about a rest that comes from a satisfaction with what you've done. He's talking about a deeper rest, a more internal rest, a rest that grabs our soul and possesses it. And you've studied the Bible long enough to know that whenever God gives you a series, the third is always the greatest. Right? Rest from bondage, 
satisfaction. But then there's a third kind of rest. So let's look at it. Third, notice the severity. Look at verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You say, oh no. I mean, how many times have you had this verse taken out of its context to talk about the Word of God? And you can. But here he's talking about rest. He's talking about God's promise. And now he beats us up. You know, there's some commentators that actually call this preacher schizophrenic. Sometimes he's really soft, and he's soft, and we're feeling good, and all of a sudden, pow! He gets hard. You say, wait a minute. Where's the rest in this? He's talking about cutting a person open. He's talking about being slain by the sword of his word. Where's the rest in that? You know what he's saying? He's saying this. Unless you work hard and keep yourself pure, you're a goner. I love what Mark Twain used to say. It's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me, it's the things I do. And that's true of this text. The preacher says, we are all naked and exposed before the eyes of God. What's he doing? He's taking us back to the Garden of Eden. Where Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. Why? Because their identity is fixed in God. The Bible says they walk with Him. They know Him absolutely. There's total full disclosure. And yet, what are they tempted to do? They're tempted to believe they're actually enslaved to God's authority in their life, and so they want to be free. And so they turn from God... Seeking to be their own gods, and what happens? Ironically, their quest for freedom gains them slavery. Instantly, they know they're insufficient. Instantly, they grow restless. Instantly, they think, what what are we going to do? And you know what they do? They hide. Their only hope is full disclosure, and that's something they can't do. They hide themselves. They put fig leaves together and they hide in the trees. And you know what the preacher's saying? Every one of us is just like them. Every one of us. All of our sins and the reason for our sin is an attempt to be gods of our own lives. Every sin is a quest for autonomy. And while we want to be free to do what we want to do, when we do what we want to do, we become slaves and we hide. And we cover ourselves. What are our fig leaves? Money. Family. Career. Achievements. Reputation. Any of those things enable us to hide. They're those things that create in us a sense of worth. 
R.C. Sproul's mentor, John Gerstner, once said, what separates you from God is not so much your sin, it's your damnable good works. And that's exactly what the preacher says. Do you know there's nothing more tiring than trying to prove that you're good? Do you know there's nothing more tiring than saying just a little bit more? One friend finds you out, you diss them and get a couple more. That is tiring. You're restless. Always trying to prove yourself to others and to yourself and to God. Remember Chariots of Fire? 1924, Paris Summer Olympics. Two men were thought to be the favorites in the 400 meters. One was Harold Abraham, an English Jew, who said that when the gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to justify myself. Hear what he's saying? I've got 10 seconds to prove my worth. When that gun fires, I've got 10 seconds to prove that I matter. The other was Eric Lytle, Scottish Christian, who said this God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. See the difference? For Abraham it is, if I run, I prove to myself and to others that I matter. Think of how hard that is. You never can stop running. You ever wonder why these athletes, after achieving great success, turn to all kinds of destructive things and even die? But what's Lytle saying? I know who I am. God's made me fast. I have nothing to prove. That's why even when I'm weary, I can rest. You see, it's this last kind of rest the preacher's describing. This is the ultimate rest from which all of the other rests flow. You say, okay, I got it. How do we get there? How do we get there? How do you achieve this kind of rest? Oh, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) That's the last point. Notice our source. Look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I love this word. It's fascinating. You know the word? Exposed. Do you know what that word literally means? It means to be laid open. As most of you know, my mother died in November of last year. She died in Georgia, Hall County, Georgia. You know, in Georgia, they care about what county you're from. If you want to play golf and you're in Hall County playing golf, if you're a resident, it's cheaper. (laughs) And when they got to Hall County, right there on Lake Lanier, I would visit a lot. And I'd always learned something new. One of the first days I was there, I learned that this was the home of one of the greatest generals of the Civil War, James Longstreet. And they memorialized him with two buffets that are great. Longstreet Cafe. (laughs) I mean, I go to Longstreet as much as I can. I also learned that they've got some great hospitals, just like Pittsburgh. I knew they had great recreational opportunities with Lake Lanier. But you know what else I learned very early on? It's the chicken capital of the world. I mean, you drive down those interstates or any of the roads, you've got chicken trucks all over and feathers are flying. 
And I thought to myself, man, this chickens, I mean, it's unbelievable. You see these processing plants? I mean, they're off the road a ways and it doesn't smell. But I always wondered, how many chickens? And so when my mother died, we had this um, get-together and there was a, an executive of the chicken industry. And I said to him when I met him, can I call you a chicken executive? <laughs> he smiled and I said, I got a question for you. How many chickens do you guys kill a week? He said, in Hall County and the three surrounding counties, every week they murder 25 million chickens. 1.3 billion chickens in four counties in Georgia. You know how they kill a chicken? As Jerry could tell you. You bend their neck back. And then you lay their neck open. That's exactly the word here for exposed. This word exposed that the preacher uses is only used in antiquity in one way, animal sacrifice. So remember what he says. No creature is hidden from God's sight. All are naked and laid open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See the point he's making? You're dead. <laughs> you can't pass that test. God's Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it will cut you. You know what Francis Schaeffer used to say? He said, just suppose every one of us had a recording device put around our necks. And every time we thought or said to someone, you know, you ought to do this, it was recorded. And when we get to heaven on Judgment Day, God's going to press the play button. And He's going to say, I'm not going to judge you on what I've commanded you. I'm going to judge you on what you've thought and what you've said in command to others. You know what Schaefer would say? We would all be sunk. And then He said, if that's true of our commands, how much more true is that of God's commands? You see, we all have our necks out. And in his sight, we are all laid open. This is not happy news if you are depending on yourself. There is no rest in that. And that's why I will often say to pagans or to Christians about pagans, Let them, leave them alone. Go party. This is all you got. Because your neck is being bent back and God is going to whack you. Not because he's capricious, not because he's arbitrary, but because you've made yourself the standard and you failed. Okay, where's the hope in this? Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast our confession. What's he talking about? What confession is he talking about? I'll tell you what confession he's talking about. Jesus was restless. In the Garden of Eden, he came to the end of himself and he pleaded with God, don't let this happen. It wasn't the sword. It wasn't the nails. It was the turning of his father's back on him and going to hell. 
Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus had his neck bent back. Jesus' neck was on the line. And you know what God did? He cut it off. He was pierced with a sword. Do you see this? The weight of God's sword came down on Jesus' neck. Why? So that you and I could find rest. Remember what Jesus says at the end? One word, tetelestai. It is finished. What's finished? Not only all of his work, all of your work. Not only trying to please others for himself, but every attempt at worth based on what others think of you. It's all finished. All self-justification is finished. All attempts to earn your own worth. Do you see what he's saying? All the work is done and it's good. And God has rested. The final rest that you and I so deeply desire, he gained for us. And our default is not to believe that. It's to believe that what I do and what others think of me will determine my standing before God and for before everyone else. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. You know, 200 years ago, a Scotsman wrote a great hymn that we don't sing. I don't know the tune, but I know some of the words. Listen to these words. Lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet. And you will stand in Him alone, gloriously complete. What are your deadly doings? It's those things you're doing that you think are going to earn you some favor with God. Lay them down. Have you ever really done that? You know something, if you have, you know that you don't just do that once. You must do that every day. There is a rest that you and I desperately long for. It's the deepest kind of rest you can find. It's the rest that we find in Him when we know that it is all finished. You know, somebody has said the gospel is like a blazing fire and our self-justifying works get us cold. I mean, think of this. The gospel is here and you embrace it and you're right here by the fire and you warm yourself. You recognize Jesus is your all in all. It really doesn't matter what others think. It really doesn't matter how bad you've done. You are a screw-up. You are nothing but he's awfully fond of you. (laughs) And then you leave. And you get into the self-justifying stuff. What I can do. What others think of me. How did I perform? How am I doing? Is everybody happy with me? Am I getting my needs met? My negative need for self-satisfaction and self-worth? And you get cold. Where do you get warm? Right back there. That's why Martin Luther said we must preach the gospel to ourselves. What's it say? 
Jesus had his neck out. Jesus was fully exposed. And that's why he is my sure defense. My righteousness. You see, the question these Christians are asking is, if Jesus loves me so much, why is life so hard? And one of the reasons it's hard is because they've forgotten their rest. What's a bad diagnosis in light of our rest? What's a lost job in light of our rest? What's a child that goes kooky in light of our rest? Ladies and gentlemen, that's not a cop-out. That's coming to your senses. He's not only the final word, our brother and builder. He is our rest. Remember the Brennan Manning line? He loves you for who you are, not who you should be, because you'll never be who you should be. Do you believe that? That's the gospel. Think about that next week. It's better than this. Amen. <laughs>